Hey, stay tuned, listeners. Throughout the past year, you've heard me talk about the ups and downs of writing a book. You've been here the whole time on this often arduous journey. So join me in the final steps and pre-order your own copy of this labor of love at doingjusticebook.com. You'll find various options, whether you need your two-day shipping or want it from your favorite local independent bookseller. And for those of you who become accustomed to my voice in your ear, there is an audiobook. Order now at doingjusticebook.com, and the book or audiobook will be on its way to you this March 19th. From CAFE, welcome to CAFE Insider. I'm Preet Bharara. And I'm Ann Milgram. Diane. Good morning. How was your weekend? It was great. How about you? It was good. I um, I signed a lot of books this weekend. Congratulations. Right there, 20 seconds into the program. <laughs> it's a new record. Plug for the, for the book. <laughs> um, I don't think I have lasting carpal tunnel syndrome, but a little bit. Yeah. It comes from being a lawyer, too. Yeah, I guess that's, I guess that's right. So that's fun. Um, that comes out in two weeks and a day. It's exciting. Order your 100 copies right now, insiders. All right, so we got a lot to talk about, as usual. Uh, today, I guess we got to talk about some more issues relating to the Michael Cohen testimony, Jared Kushner's uh, controversy over security clearance, and what Jerry Nadler has planned for the Judiciary Committee. Maybe we, we start first with something that at least I had a chance to opine about for 30-something minutes at length on the Stay Tuned podcast last week, and that was Michael Cohen's testimony, yep. which, like all other things, even though it was just a few days ago, and there were some blockbuster things that he said about the president's character and also his involvement in criminal activity, according to Michael Cohen, it still seems like a long time ago. It does. Did you have a reaction, just sort of thumbnail reaction? So I'll tell you, I'll tell you. So first I, I watched some of it, but then I've had the chance since then to read the transcript. And I actually, I'm glad I had the chance to sort of step back and read the transcript and we can talk about that in a minute. But my reaction when I was reading it was I was not surprised by most of it. And I think that's probably true for you as well. There were a couple of new things. Um, you know, Donald Trump Jr. signing the check, being a part of the payment to Stormy Daniels was new. Cohen saying he was in the room with Roger when the president had Roger Stone on speakerphone talking about release of hacked Democratic emails. That was new. And some of the details, obviously, about the conversations about Trump Tower, Moscow, the the six or more conversations, I think, with the president about the sort of how's the Russia project and also just the insight into how the president would operate. So the president wouldn't say, and I think this is actually worth talking about just for a second, which is the president wouldn't say, I want you to lie about the Moscow Tower in Russia, which doesn't surprise me at all, having been a criminal prosecutor for many years. It's sort of normally how these things go. Yeah, he said he speaks in code. Yeah. And I think we've probably both seen this frequently that it's rare and particularly people who you know, have a sort of course of conduct where they often are, are trying to get over or sort of push the push the boundaries and they start speaking in code and they expect people to be with them. And by and large, the people around them are. But, but you know, but I have a thought about that, that I realized in the day after the testimony, if you think about the quality of the questioning by the Democrats and the Republicans, now the Republicans wanted to undermine his credibility. And as I said the other day, they spent a lot of time talking about the book deal and a yeah. movie deal. But there was actually a good amount of material to cross-examine him on and to press him on and to undermine his credibility on. And one of them is what you just talked about. So in the one case, Michael Cohen said, in a way that's credible to you and me who have a certain kind of experience, that people speak in code and they don't direct you, you know, you know clearly and concretely to do this or that. And he says that about the Trump-Moscow plan. On the other hand, with respect to some other things that he implicates the president on, he testified very clearly and said in open court during his plea allocution 
that he did some things uh, in coordination with and at the direction of right. Donald Trump. So, you know, imagine how that would be in court. Yeah. When you say, well, so on some instances, in some instances, you say that the president used code. In other instances, he knew quite well how to direct you to do something. And on top of that, uh, I think he testified fairly clearly that the president directed him to lie about whether or not Trump knew about the payments before the election. Right. So, so which is it? Does he speak in code? Does he not speak in code? Do you just want to implicate the president no matter what? How does that work? Yeah, that's a great point. I, did you find the cross-examination? And we should, we should just sort of say that I, I sort of broke the testimony into two parts, which is what you and I would talk about in a criminal case is direct examination, where a witness who is your witness, meaning the Democrats called Michael Cohen to testify, he's their witness, essentially. And this isn't exactly true in congressional investigations like it is in um, in criminal trials, because sometimes in congressional investigations, people, all the Democrats and Republicans sort of have the same goal. Here, I think their goals were very different. The Democratic goal was to get additional information against the president related from, from Michael Cohen, to get more details about Michael Cohen's allegations. And in a direct examination, you ask the witness questions to elicit testimony. You want them to appear credible. You want corroborating evidence that makes them appear credible. And you ask questions often in a way to gain additional insight and information. Cross-exam is the, is the other side, which here would have been the Republicans, which is when a witness is antagonistic to you and you want to essentially get that witness. You want to undermine that witness's credibility or you want to show that witness to be a liar. And there are a lot of ways to think about doing this. I was fascinated by the fact here that the Republicans, it was like one note. Basically, yeah. it was. It seemed that their uh, method and approach to undermine him and to make him seem a liar was simply to say, "You're a liar, right? Aren't you a liar?" And he said, "Yes, yes." And by the but and, now I'm telling the truth. Yes, and by the fiftieth time he said it, I actually sort of felt like, okay, we, you know, from the fifth time, even the first time, the Democrat, uh, the chairman of the committee elicited, "You lied," so it wasn't as effective as I think they probably expected it to be. Overall, I thought Michael Cohen was pretty credible. On I, I gave a you know pluses and minuses. On the on the negative side, he's a convicted liar, true. On the plus side, he has even greater incentive not to lie going forward. And we'll talk about this criminal referral that one of the House Republicans has made about Michael Cohen and his testimony. But then he also, you know, was was cool and calm and collected. His Didn't demeanor, take debate. His, yes, de- his demeanor, demeanor was matters. Good. Yes. It's not dispositive, but it matters, especially in contrast to what we know his demeanor in real life has been before. Right. It's a good point. With a lot of bravado and a lot of, you know, sort of thuggery and, and obnoxious conduct and behavior. He seems to have turned a corner, which is what you want when you have a cooperating witness on the stand in a standard case. But I made a point over the weekend and have made it in other places also. Look, he was not a perfect witness. He has baggage. And, and my one comment on the people who, you know, don't like the president and want the president to go down. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of such people. That doesn't mean that the rules relating to credibility of witnesses just goes out the door. And I marvel sometimes at the way some people who so badly want Michael Cohen to be the, the, the person who five minutes ago they hated and despised and thought was corrupt and a crook, all of which are true. They now think that he's the, you know, the, the angel of truth and it's a mixed bag, and life is complicated, and cases are complicated, and witnesses are complicated, particularly ones who have admitted guilt to crimes. Yeah, and credibility is is a critical thing, and sometimes people are credible in part, and yeah. and that's a hard thing I think for people to get their their mind around. And you know, when I think about credibility, I always think I do think about demeanor. Um, I think about whether they were forthright, they told the good and the bad. 
Uh, and well, let's come back on that one in a minute. They acknowledge their role. They are able to provide corroborating information or other facts that that show that they're truthful. One of the things I stumbled on with Cohen a little bit, or I, I hedge on and hesitate on a little bit, is you tell the good with the bad. In large part, he does tell, I think, he gives a lot of information and he implicates himself. But it still felt to me like he was having a hard time admitting the greed part. Here's the other thing that's sort of interesting about the way people are commenting on Michael Cohen's testimony. And I, I made the point that you know, there are some ways in which Michael Cohen has a little bit of trouble as a witness. On the one hand, he said during his testimony that he had no interest in going to the White House or having a job in, in the administration when there is some evidence and other people said that he did have such an interest. And I, I watched and read with a mild bit of amusement that lots of people who don't like Trump were prepared to parse out the language very specifically and say, well, there are reasonable ways that you could harmonize those two things. And that may be true. But the context in which we're talking about this is not some esoteric exercise where you know linguists parse the language and compare them to each other. Yeah, those are arguments that would be made by the prosecution if he were your witness in summation. That doesn't mean he, he, he doesn't take a hit. You know, the real world in which, and again, we're talking about criminal trials. This is not a criminal trial. But, but a the, lot of it, a lot of it is applicable. How you? It's totally witnesses. parallel. And so, normal jurors, when they hear on the one hand that he he seemed to be eager to have a job in the White House, which is relevant to his credibility, because it maybe suggests that he has some reason to be disgruntled and to say things that are not true because he's angry. Uh, the way they're going to view that is not going to be through a a parsed out linguistic analysis, and that I think is an important point. Right, and I I sort of my takeaway on all that. Um, which, by the way, I don't think is a material lie no, that gets you be, right. right. And and so I think I think that that's where I would draw the line. But my take on the Cohen thing is as follows, which is, and and I'm speculating here, so let me be clear. But I think he probably did want to go to the White House, and that people who are saying, oh, he said he was interested in going to D.C., he probably did have an interest in that. And then it came down to the fact that he was not going to be the White House counsel. He was not going to be able to represent Trump and this, do the same things that he'd been doing. It, it's a very different job. Um, and he might not have been offered a job that he wanted. And he might have turned down opportunities that he had to join the administration that were not, he felt, right or that were commensurate with what he wanted to be doing. So it's possible that there is, it's possible that he ultimately did turn down a job. But I think I stumbled also on this question of, oh, you know, for him to say, I never wanted to go to D.C., if people are saying, and it, it's it's been reported that there are text messages back and forth where he he was expressing at least some interest in it, that feels to me like it's not completely credible. Now, the thing is, we, I think we do also have to be careful on how much focus and weight we give something like that, where it's also, I think, fair to, to sort of ask ourselves whether that's an intentional lie or whether he's now told himself, I didn't want to go. And it could be that he didn't get the job he wanted. It could be for a lot of reasons, but... Um, but I do think that that's one space that that clearly Representative Jordan and others are going to try to really blow open. Yeah, my, my only narrow point on this is in in a charged political atmosphere, people who are on Trump's side, you know, are not clear-eyed about how they view testimony, and people who are against Trump don't view testimony in a clear-eyed way. They they people want something to be true so badly on one side or the other that they can flip their position, even on a particular person without necessarily paying attention to the hallmarks of what is what is truthfulness and what is falsity. One one question is his lawyer, Cohen's lawyer is with him at testimony at the testimony and has clearly reviewed everything. So it's a, it's a little bit different 
than some scenarios where somebody's just riffing off the cuff. I mean, he Cohen is prepared and clearly would have been prepared for that question because there was an issue, I think, already with the Southern District on his interest in joining the White House. So this is not the first time the issue has come up. So I would assume, and, and you tell me if this is a bad assumption, and it may be, that his lawyer, Lanny Davis, had vetted his answer and was comfortable that it's factually true or at least consistent with enough facts and text messages and paper records. Yeah, it may be. It may be. But I, you know, I still got to believe, and I don't know all the facts and all the details and I haven't reviewed everything, but my, my guess would be if he had been your client or my client, there would have been a way to talk about it truthfully that also doesn't cause alarm bells to go off and look like a contradiction. There's, there's ways to finesse language and to say, look, you know, clearly, so that people don't have to go back to the other documents in a way that is not so easy to criticize. And not only that, uh, give fodder, which I don't think is going to amount to much, for Representatives Jordan and Meadows to make a criminal referral to the Department of Justice on the testimony that Michael Cohen just gave. And one of the, one of the issues there is whether or not if, if there was a lie, was it material? And I think there's a decent argument that it's not. You want to talk about materiality? Yeah, let's talk about materiality, and then I want to go back on um, on one other piece as well. So there's always a question when it comes to, to lies, whether they're intentional, meaning it's something that the person who tells the lie knows to be false. So if I believe something and I tell you, even if it turns out later that that's false, I'm not guilty of, of perjury or 1001, um, the federal crime of lying to a federal official. And so that's important, the intentionality piece. The second piece is material, which means it has to be connected to the core question that's being looked at. It can't be, you know, I say the sky is green when the sky is blue. Nobody cares. It's not relevant to the investigation being done by Mueller's team or the U.S. Congress. And materiality, it really has been defined by the courts as it goes to the ultimate questions that are being asked. And so, you know, when we think about it in terms of a criminal case, for example, it again, it, it has to be a fact that someone lies about that really goes to the heart of the question or would mislead someone as to the, the core of the investigation. Yeah. So one statute puts it this way. Sometimes it's nice to hear the language of the statute. It says, the test for materiality is whether the false statement, quote, has a natural tendency to influence or is capable of influencing the decision-making body to which it is addressed. And so the, the question of whether uh, you know, he wanted to go to the White House, not go to the White House, doesn't seem to go to the heart of the matter. I agree. The The one thing I want to say about, about cross-examination and sort of how you think about these things, and one of the reasons why probably you and I are both a little stuck on the Cohen White House thing is that when you think about how to cross-examine a witness and what questions you want to ask them, to me, you always think about if they're telling the truth, what else would be there? What else is consistent with what how they were acting and what is missing from their story? And so you're always sort of thinking, okay, this person is if this person is telling the truth, how would this actually look? Like what would the whole picture look like? Or if they were telling the truth, what's missing here? And with Cohen, at the time that Trump is elected, he's a hundred percent on the team still. And so he's out there and he's fighting for Trump every day. He's cutting these deals. He's sending letters. He's taking checks from Stormy Daniels. Um, and we should talk about the 2017 nature of the checks in a minute, but he's really in there. And so what's consistent with somebody who's really in there is his power comes from Trump. You want to be with Trump. And so he ultimately takes a job as his private lawyer, but it's hard to imagine that he did not entertain in some way, in my view, being a part of that White House team. The, the, the center of power is moving to D.C. He's been connected to that center of power. It's hard for me to imagine that he didn't at least seriously consider being a part of the inside team. 
I think it's hard for people to understand how this transition works for a person who has been a criminal or who has lied and becomes a reasonable and credible cooperating witness. And people have this view that human beings are static, and many people are. It seems, to use another example from the Mueller investigation, Paul Manafort is an incorrigible recidivist. He had a chance to save his skin, couldn't do it, didn't turn around, and he's going to jail perhaps for the rest of his life. Michael Cohen, you might have thought, could be the same kind of person. But transformations happen. You know, captains in organized crime families, I've seen it firsthand, and as have you. They go from one day committing extortions, murders, racketeering, all sorts of things, and not always, because not everyone can cooperate. Something breaks, and something changes. And sometimes it changes, by the way, and I give this one more plug for the book. I have, a, I have an entire chapter, the longest chapter in my book is called Snitches. It's about cooperating witnesses and how difficult the moral quandaries are and the personal decision-making is. And I give the example of, you know, sometimes people, they choose to flip and cooperate when they feel betrayed by their prior patron, whether it's the head of the Gambino crime family or it's Donald Trump. You can make the transition to somebody who is now prepared to tell the truth. You have to test it and you have to be skeptical of it, but it happens. And, and I think that's the case here. I mean, I, I, I do think Cohen is largely credible and I'm, I'm sort of pointing out the few spaces where I think he's been less than than sort of forthright or, or maybe not even forthright, but he's, he's sort of come less far in his evolution. But I, I, di- I did find him largely to be credible. What do you make, Preet, of the, there's a lot of focus on the 2017 checks that are sent by the president to pay Michael Cohen for he Michael Cohen takes his home equity line to pay Stormy Daniels at the before the election that deal is done but then the president you know has a series of checks that come out while he's president and so you know they they were very careful in making this record and they spent a lot of time Cohen did it in his upfront statement he went back to it um, he talked about you know and he was questioned about this but whose names are on the checks yeah and so you and I have talked a little bit before about this question of if the president's guilty of the campaign finance violation, which it certainly looks like the elements are there on its face. And again, we don't know the inside. But if the president's guilty of that, you know, we've talked a little bit about does that warrant impeachment when it precedes his time as president? But it doesn't. Right. And what what, is, <laughs> what impact does that have, the checks in 2017? I mean, I think it has a, a very significant impact because it both as a matter of congressional tradition uh, and law, you're talking about a president who knew what he was doing and was making, you know, repayment to his lawyer who had helped him win the election through this sort of campaign finance fraud in the Oval Office. And there's something deeply troubling about that. And if and when there are hearings relating to impeachment or further hearings on on these issues narrowly outside of impeachment, that's the kind of thing where majority members are going to slam their fists on the desk and say these things happened in the Oval Office. And, you know, there'll be comparisons back to what Bill Clinton did in the Oval Office, and you can have a different view about what's more serious. But I think hush money payment repayments that have been lied about by the lawyer and by the president himself when he was a candidate, and I think thereafter, to reporters through a a mechanism where you had this, you know, make-believe home equity line for the purpose of shielding the payments, it all looks very tawdry and and not, what's the phrase that Trump uses? It's not very cool and not very legal. Is that what he uses? Well, he says very cool and very legal. <laughs> okay. So I see, I, I turned that around. Right. I put a no. Gotcha. Okay. With you. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens next? This is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. No question about it. I mean, 
Cohen may give more testimony. He's headed, obviously, to federal prison. So, you know, I think there have already been a lot of conversations about subpoenas being issued coming out of this. There's allegations that I think are could be interesting, could could be not interesting related to taxes um, and whether or not, you know, Cohen said very clearly he inflated his income when it was good for him. He deflated his income when it was in his favor. Um, that's not uncommon in, in business, I think. And so we have to really be sort of thoughtful. And, and I'm not I'm not arguing in favor Are of Are you defending anyway. Donald no, Trump? I am not. Wait a minute. I am Wait saying. <laughs> here's what I'm saying. Are here's, you saying being calm? You should be calm and rational and reasonable? What I'm saying is that there, there's an interesting question that I think warrants following up and looking at his taxes related to that came out of this, but it doesn't, in my mind, say slam dunk, he committed tax fraud. Um, but again, I think there was enough there in what Cohen said to warrant a further inquiry into whether or not um, Trump accurately reported taxes. So there's going to be a parade of witnesses through the Oversight Committee, which is where Michael Cohen's testimony took place. Uh, And you can expect a whole bunch of people because they're just getting started. We forgot about Mr. Calamari, too. We did forget about Mr. Calamari. He'll be there. Usually that's the appetizer. (laughs) (laughs) We're we're way past the appetizer. That was the most terrible joke (laughs) ever. We're going to have to edit that out. I found it. I found it funny. (laughs) The control room is laughing. I know. At us. At us, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just point something out? Yeah. Because we had a question once from someone asking, you know, what is it like physically? And I think I was asked, am I in a futon in my basement? <laughs> like, no, we're in a studio. But the weird thing about the studio is a little bit, and I hadn't really thought about this until a second ago. There's a window, right? So you and I are in the studio together. Mm-hmm. Looking alone, at each other. Looking at each other. And there's a window that has producers and sound people in our team and it's a little bit like in the movies. And we hear them in our ears. We as hear them well. in our ears. Yeah. But it's a little bit like the movies where you have like, sort of the sergeant standing outside and watching the interrogation. Yep. And every once in a while you look over and you see expressions of disapproval <laughs> <laughs> or laughter. <laughs> or or la- at us, not with us. True. It's a little disconcerting. But, True. you know, I, lo- I love They're you. nice I people, though. Guys. Yeah, they're amazing. All right. So, what's the deal with the book? So, is there a book? Trump says there's a book. Um, oh, the only book I know about, I don't think there's it's a book. It's called yet. Doing Justice. Right. It's, it's, it's <laughs> Who's it written by? It's, ri- it's written by... Yours truly. Yours you? truly, mm-hmm. yeah. The book is interesting because... So it's very common when you cross-examine a witness to try to show that there's a financial benefit that will come to them through their testimony. And so, you know, here, Michael Cohen, through his, through his coming forward, he's admitted essentially to... Um, to fraud, he's paid back the IRS. I mean, he he hasn't he has not made money off this transaction in, in any way at this moment in time, or at least he's he's disgorged the money that he's made. So the argument was, well, you're going to go out and make money, and you have a vested interest in beating up on Donald Trump. This is going to be a payday for you. And so there was a lot of conversation about you have a book deal, and I, you know, I was pretty skeptical of it. I mean, he he may very well have a wink, wink, nod, nod book deal, but he said under oath. People have talked to me about a book. I, I haven't agreed to write a book. I thought his testimony that was very compelling. You know, everyone else has written a book. Omarosa has written a book. W- you know, why shouldn't he be able to, to write a book? But then the president's been tweeting that there has been a book that he's written that's a love letter to Trump. But look, so the fact that he may have written some manuscript uh, in full or in part that said Donald Trump is amazing back before when he was his shill and his fixer and his personal lawyer and his you know, thug-in-chief – that, that'll be interesting at any future trial, um, and presumably that'll be good impeachment material, but yeah. I don't think it's dispositive because that's what his job was. In the same way that he said lovely things about Trump before and he lied for Trump before, 
this sort of, I think, can be swept away into that category of thing. Yeah, I agree. I agree, particularly if it's part of the, the time frame when he's 100% on the Trump team. I do think it's it's better to know those things and not be cross-examined on them. Yes. And so that's an example where, you know, I think if you or I were Cohen's lawyers, we would have fronted that earlier, that there could be this this information out there. It's clear Trump knows about it and others in Trump's, in Trump's world were aware of it, and that's why they questioned him on it. But I, I agree with you that ultimately it's going to be consistent with where he was before Trump became president, when he was part of the team. So while we're on the issue of how members of Congress question Michael Cohen, um, I, I have been, like others, complimentary of the questioning by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, hashtag AOC. And Twitter user Gadfly1974 asks, what made AOC's questioning of Michael Cohen so effective? I think she did a few things, and... And this really goes to questioning witnesses overall. First of all, she just asked questions. She was sort of a normal person in a sense of, you know, who else should we talk to? You know, just asking really short, direct questions. No speech. No speech. And I bet if we went back, and I have not done this, but I I bet if we went back and counted how many questions she got in for her five minutes versus other folks, we would find that she has as high or a higher number of questions than other folks. She just, she got to the point, she also did something which... I think lawyers, even we struggle with, she didn't ask that many compound questions. And when you look at the other questions asked by folks, they often ask two-part questions. And or so, seven-part. Right. And it gets really complicated. Which question should I Which question should I answer? What's the point of the question being asked? And so she was just, I think she was just very rigorous about asking specific questions and almost like she was sitting across from someone who she wanted to get information from, which is actually exactly how you're supposed to do it. So I think there were a couple of other folks who were who were pretty good at it too, or at least they were more to the point. Um, then there are a lot of examples of speeches and things where I couldn't even find the question. It was like, where's Waldo? <laughs> Look, the five-minute increments we've talked about is difficult and hard to make use of. So you got to figure out a way to do it. If you have 30 minutes, you still shouldn't make a speech, but maybe you can afford to make a little bit of a speech. And sometimes people do that in Supreme, in Supreme Court Confirmation hearings in the Senate, in my experience, and I attended two of them personally, the rounds go 30 minutes. So you have time to get into an area of inquiry. You can ask about a line of case law and you can make a little bit of a speech. When you have five minutes, you got to get to business. And I don't think she even used all the five minutes. And one more thing you said earlier about how there was nothing new that came out. I think there's a lot of stuff in Michael Cohen's own direct testimony from the statement that was a bombshell quality about the character of the president and his conduct. Then it was up to these members to draw out more information exactly. and there was precious little more drawn out other yes. than from AOC and some others. One, one thing also that you and I probably talk about all the time with, when we're with prosecutors who are about to try their first case or go into the first grand jury is that it's actually not about the question. It's about the question and the answer together, right? And so like if you really want information, you're understanding that it's not just you talking for two minutes and then the witness saying yes or no as a rule when you're doing direct examination and trying to get information. You're trying to have a back and forth in a conversation where you keep getting more information. And as a rule, you, the United States Congress is not great at that. Did you ever yell, holler at a witness on cross-examination? I can't think of a time that I did. I didn't. Yeah, I cannot think of a single time. Yeah, that I so you know, I don't think it's effective. It's not it? effective at all. Mm-hmm. It's not effective, and they did they did a lot of it, <laughs> which I guess is not about not about truth. It's about you know showing some loyalty to the president, I suppose. Maybe it's an effort to rattle the witness, but you know, once you see one colleague, and, and again, we're just talking about effectiveness here, not a not a partisan analysis, because I've seen Democrats do this too. Once you've seen one colleague yell at Michael Cohen, 
and it doesn't rattle the guy and actually causes him to look sympathetic a little yes. bit, then you shouldn't be the fifth person to yell at Michael Cohen. And whether it's Michael Cohen or not, it, it doesn't work. It, it doesn't serve your purpose. That's a great point. Preet, did you ever print out giant signs that said liar, liar, and put it behind a witness you were cross-examining? Yeah, liar, liar, pants on fire. Yeah, I, I usually I usually do that. You know, I would write it in my palm, and when the judge wasn't looking, I'd like flash the palm. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the witness would get rattled, and then I would win the case. Did you know that Jim Jordan used to be a wrestler? Is that why he doesn't wear a jacket? <laughs> I don't know why he doesn't wear a jacket. Did you also know that he uses the word pled? I rest my case. I'm speechless. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. By the way, we should just make clear for folks who sometimes don't always appreciate that we're joking, making a reference to something that actually happened. There was a representative uh, on the Republican side who held up such a sign, who had such a sign at the hearing, and that's our favorite uh, dentist congressman, Paul Gosar. That's right. Also not something I would do during cross-examination, for the record. Yeah, although I have done it when I've gone to the dentist. Every once in a while, every once in a while, the dentist will say that wisdom tooth has to come out, and then I pull up my sign: liar, liar, pants on fire. That's I think the proper use of that sign. I am not a fan of the dentist, so I am with you. Amen. (laughs) Will you will you be serious, please? Yes. All right. Let's talk about Jerry Nadler, who's the chair of the Judiciary Committee, for a minute before we get to the 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 other big topic, which is Jared Kushner's security clearance. Jerry Nadler is the chair of the Judiciary Committee, which is distinct from the Oversight Committee. And, uh, you know, he wants to get in on the action also. Yep. Uh, and I don't say that in a, ne- in a negative way. The Judiciary Committee is incredibly important. And it is the committee through which impeachment proceedings, if they happen, will, will begin mm-hmm. and be conducted. And so he said uh, somewhat dramatically on television on Sunday that his committee is issuing 60 requests for information and documents. It's a large number. It's a large number. And and he was pretty specific also in saying, um, on this week, uh, he said, tomorrow we will be issuing document requests to over 60 different people and individuals from the White House to the Department of Justice. Donald Trump Jr., Alan Weisselberg, who of course was the CFO of the Trump Organization, who's who signed the checks that, um, or who was involved in the in the deal with Cohen and, and the president to pay off Stormy Daniels, to begin the investigations to present the case to the American people about obstruction of justice, corruption, and abuse of power. So why is he not waiting for Mueller? That's a good question. It could be that he believes the reports that Mueller is almost done and the report is forthcoming. Remember, very breathlessly, a couple of weeks ago, people kept saying that was going to happen. People are saying it again this week. And so it takes a while. Once you issue a document request to decide whether or not you have to issue a subpoena, it takes time for them to look at their documents, turn them over. So maybe he wants to get the process started. And you know, depending on where Mueller is at the time when he has an agreement for a witness to come forward, he may or may not proceed. And we've seen that happen before with Michael Cohen also. These things can get adjourned or they can be uh, deals worked out with respect to the scope of the testimony so he doesn't interfere. But I think he, he doesn't want to waste any time. He also said, by the way, on the, you know, the ever-present question of impeachment, he's very careful with his language. He said, quote, impeachment is a long way down the road. We don't have the facts yet but we're going to initiate proper investigations, close quote. I don't know how long way down the road impeachment is, especially if the Mueller report comes out soon. Right. I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, also, you know, one of the one of the things I thought was interesting about Cohen's testimony and not surprising, but, but sort of just to unpack this for one second, because I think this goes directly to the obstruction question, is 
the question of who reviewed Cohen's testimony before he gave the false testimony before the Senate and House um, intelligence committees and the the testimony that he's now admitted to to having lied at. And he lied in writing. And he said that that testimony was reviewed by the president's lawyers. The, the president's former personal lawyer, Jay Sekulow, came out and said, no, I didn't do it. Um, other lawyers have not commented. You know, Aha. Right. And what so, does that mean, right, Ann Milgram? I think that's the question. Um, does it mean that um, the attorney for Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump has, has not made a comment? Does it mean that that's the person who reviewed it? There could have been multiple people who reviewed it. But I do think it gets closer to this question of the president's involvement in at a minimum, like sort of supporting a lie or not correcting a lie. I mean, it's one thing if Michael Cohen says the president spoke in code. I went out. I was just playing for the team. This is what I thought the team wanted. I heard the president's public statements. It's different when you say I submitted written testimony to the president's lawyers and the White House lawyers, and they actually they they made some changes to it. But that testimony that was submitted was false, and it's clearly it's clear that everyone knew that that was false. And so, or at least the the president and right. the members of the Trump organization who were involved in the Moscow-Russia deal would have known that it was false. And so that to me does raise some interesting questions. Yeah, I should just make clear when I laughed before, just because a lawyer doesn't say anything doesn't mean that they're implicated in having reviewed something or not reviewed something. It just means the attention turns to them. Yeah, sometimes right. it's best to keep your mouth shut, which is maybe what I would do if I were a lawyer in this situation because these lawyers have been talking too much. Look, and on the issue of, of whether or not the lawyers for Trump uh, at Trump's behest and on his behalf uh, and to his advantage changed testimony and told lies. It's unclear. You know, m- maybe it's the case that the document that went from Michael Cohen to the president's lawyers also already contained all the lies and, and tweaks were made. It could also be... It could also be that the lawyers didn't know they were lies, which is also possible, right? I mean, again... I'm, yeah, well, the, the client doesn't tell the lawyer something. Mm-hmm. It is weird, though, that the lawyers are becoming witnesses in some ways, right? I mean, it's sort of, it's an unusual place for a lawyer to find themselves well, on something look, like to, this. To jump ahead for a second to Jared Kushner and the fact that it now appears, if you believe the reporting, that Donald Trump directed John Kelly, who memorialized in a document this fact, directed John Kelly over the objection of career people. Including the White House counsel, Don inclu- McCain. Including, including his own handpicked White House counsel, Don McGahn, to give Jared Kushner a security clearance. One interesting thing about that from the perspective of, of you and me who are lawyers is that Jared Kushner's lawyer, Abby Lowell, basically put out a statement throwing his client under the bus saying, yeah, I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's how he said I think actually he said it exactly that way. That is was a stunning thing for me to see. I mean, you, you just don't generally see lawyers come out and say, you know, my clients never told me that it went down a different yeah, way. This is what he said to He said to me, because remember, just to go back for a second, there's been all this controversy about security clearances. As we have said here before, and I've written before, Donald Trump, where he's an ordinary citizen, never in a million years could get a security clearance. It's just different when you're the president of the United States because he has to have this information. And he does have the authority, granted, to give other people security clearances. Doesn't mean it's wise, doesn't mean it's smart. But remember on Kushner, too, one of the, you and I talked once about how the line individual, the, the sort of person whose job it was to review, the first level review of all of Kushner's information said he shouldn't he shouldn't even get a secret security clearance. <laughs> then it went to his supervisor who agreed. Then it's very clear. So those two people were overruled. Then it's very clear that it went to John Kelly, the chief of staff, and to the White House counsel. I mean, there are just so many layers of review here that Trump overrode to give his son-in-law access to to secret and and very sensitive US 
information. I'm not a huge fan of doing this counterfactual because Republicans do it, Democrats do it, and they say, well, what if the tables were turned and circumstances are different? But, but in this one, people say very compellingly, just imagine the outcry if, if Bill Clinton had, if his daughter was older, if Bill Clinton had given Chelsea Clinton's husband a top security clearance over the objection of the White House counsel, over the objection of national security officials, and, and essentially over the objection of the chief of staff, people would be screaming bloody murder, even though the president has the authority to do it. Right. And we should say this clearly. The president absolutely has the authority to do, to give anyone a, a security clearance that he wants. But there, there is an issue here, and we talk about this a lot. Even though you have the authority, there are lines that if you cross them, you misuse that authority. Yeah. And so I think here the argument is that the president misused his authority in a way that was negative to American national security interests by granting someone to whom he is personally related, which my personal view is that you should not have your family working for you in the White House. Well, there yeah, are... that's a nepotism issue. And I think Adam Schiff said there's no nepotism exception to national security clearances, even though he's allowed. Look, I mean, what, 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 if, what if the president decided, you know, I'm going to give national security clearance to Maria Butina? Right. <laughs> you know, you, you can <laughs> who give is other the woman re- who is the alleged sort of Russian intelligence asset who's now pleaded guilty? Yeah, this idea, it makes, me, it, makes my, it makes my head spin on issue after issue when people say, well, the president has the authority to do it. The president had the authority to fire the FBI director. The president has the authority to decide that he's not going to hire anyone over an IQ of 90. He has the authority to do that throughout the government. Right. You can say, and in some cases probably that's true, you can say, you, you can make all sorts of terrible decisions, but there's a congressional check on power. Right. And discretion is important to keep in mind. And abuse of authority and abuse of power sometimes means exercising what your, you know, your constitutional authority is in a way that's detrimental to the national security interest and to democracy and to what we all care about. That can still be criticized and talked about, and we're going to see a lot of hearings. And you can imagine the hearing where the CIA chief is brought in, the director of national intelligence is brought I mean, you, you can imagine the hearing if they comply with congressional subpoenas where one by one Trump's intelligence chiefs, the people who he appointed, come in and talk about why Jared Kushner was not someone who they would entrust with a national security clearance. And look, you know, this is not just a political squabble and debate. There are real reasons why the national security folks were concerned about Jared Kushner having a security clearance. And beyond the, the fact that he, you know, had to restate his financials, I think a thousand times, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but you know, many, many, many times. And his, his entanglements and uh, involvement with, with people from other countries. But in addition to that, the thing that's most shocking to me in the Washington Post article said, quote, some foreign officials whose communications were intercepted by the U.S. intelligence privately discussed how they could manipulate Kushner taking advantage of his complex business arrangements, financial difficulties he had, had he had at the time, and his lack of foreign policy experience. So you have, if you believe this, you have interceptions of foreign folks saying, practically salivating over the idea of how they'll be able to manipulate this person who people are saying is the de facto chief of staff to the president of the United States. That's not a person who seems like they should have a top secret clearance. And to that point, what's what's sort of stunning about that reporting is that it's not hypothetical. And so it's not a conversation about what could happen if somebody got a security clearance that they shouldn't. Here, there's a concrete example picked up sort of very early in Kushner's tenure about, we think we can roll this guy and from our from foreign governments. And that's a really critical, critical thing. One of the questions a listener asked, um, Chris Baker said, Preet and Ann, as a stay tuned insider, I was wondering if you could explain how congressional hearings work. Can committees compel anyone to testify 
Jared Ivanka, for example? And if so, how many times? So is are we going to see Jared yeah. Kushner? I think we may. I think, look, th- there are a couple of considerations in hearings. One is what they have the authority to do. If you're not in the majority, you can't compel anyone to do anything because you can't issue a subpoena. And not every committee has subpoena power. The ones we're talking about do. Then there's the political component of, you know, whether or not there will be public support if you run too fast, if you leapfrog over other, you know, lesser witnesses. Uh, but they can. They can compel anyone to come. The question is, what can they compel them to say? And can they actually make them appear uh, without a long fight in court? And some of the things that people can assert, as you'll, as we've seen, and you'll see a lot, we'll be talking a lot about this, maybe we can have a whole episode on executive privilege. Yep. But people will assert privilege. People sometimes will assert their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Now, when that happens, even though in a regular court of law, you're supposed to draw no inference from that, the public in a congressional hearing context will probably draw some inferences from that. In fact, <laughs> Donald Trump himself said, it's funny how he used to say things before the shoe was on the other foot. When people asserted the fifth, he said, that's something only a criminal does. Right. <laughs> he basically went against you know, one of the prime the protections in the Constitution yeah. that says exactly the opposite, that you can't presume anything from that. He says that that's actually definitive proof of guilt. So we'll see what happens when one of his relatives does the same. And we should just talk about the fact that when congressional hearings like this start to happen and subpoenas get issued, the president can say executive privilege, which then, as you just said, goes often into a very long court fight. And we've seen every administration, Democrat and Republican, when these types of investigations are starting and subpoenas start to get issued, they staff up, they hire a lot more people in the White House counsel's office, and they really prepare to fight and try to push back and with some success. I mean, I think I think this is one of the interesting questions is going to be how much does the White House push back on these subpoenas? And part of that, to your point, will be how much the public wants the information and then what courts do in in response to that. And it could drag on for a very long period of time. You're talking about the White House staffing up. It's been reported, but gone largely under the radar that the White House, under the new White House counsel, has hired, I forgot the number, but it's a double digit number of lawyers. And while we like to make fun in in the podcast and people do on television and on Saturday Night Live, that people like Rudy Giuliani, who were, I think, once feared and respected lawyers of a particular caliber, but you make fun of those folks because they say kind of nonsensical, untruthful things. I will tell you that many of the lawyers being hired by the White House are, are killer lawyers, a couple of whom I know personally, um, at least one of whom is an alum of the Southern District of New York. They are excellent lawyers. They know what they're doing. And they'll probably not, not be heard from. You're not going to hear their names or see their names in the paper. But but they are doing something that, as you described, is important to do. This, this happened in the Clinton administration. In the Obama administration. The Obama this administration. W- yeah. Once the investigations start gearing up, you know, they prepare for the defense. And there are some really, really high caliber lawyers um, who are smart enough not to go on television who will be fighting the battles for the president. Yeah. And it's likely that there will be a lot of fights. Okay. That's all the time we have today for Insider. We'll be back next Monday. So send us your questions to insider at cafe.com. And we'll do our best to answer them. See you next weekend. Thanks, Preet. This is the Cafe Insider Podcast. Your hosts are Preet Bharara and Ann Milgram. The producers at Pineapple Street Media are Kat Aaron, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The executive producer at Cafe is Tamara Sepper. And the Cafe team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. Thank you for being a part of the Cafe Insider community. 